Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. According to my notes, this is week three, uh, five of our study of the Lotus Sutra, chapter three. And um, I see that Amazon has come through. (laughs) (laughs) With a cover I've never seen. That's really beautiful. All crew of technicians braving radiation and fire became the only people remaining at Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Station Tuesday, and perhaps Japan's last chance of preventing a broader nuclear catastrophe. They crawl through labyrinths of equipment in utter darkness pierced only by their flashlights, listening for periodic explosions as hydrogen gas escaped from crippled reactors and ignites on contact with air. They breathe through uncomfortable respirators and carry heavy oxygen tanks on their back. They wear white full-body jumpsuits with snug-fitting hoods that provide little protection from the invisible radiation sleeting through their bodies. They are the faceless 50 the unnamed operators who stayed behind. They have volunteered to pump seawater on dangerously exposed nuclear fuel, already thought to be partly melting and spewing radioactive material to prevent full meltdowns that could throw thousands of tons of radioactive dust high into the air and imperil millions of their friends. The workers and an increasing proportion of soldiers struggled this past weekend to keep hundreds of gallons of seawater a minute flowing through temporary fire pumps in all three reactors. Among the many that officials acknowledged on Wednesday were what appeared to be yet another fire at the plant and indications that the containment vessel around the reactor may have ruptured. That reactor, number three, appears to be releasing radioactive steam. The reactor's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, said it's been able to double the number of people at the plant to 100 as a result of falling radiation levels, but that was before the sudden release of radioactive vapor. It's not clear how many of the workers and soldiers at the plant 
have evacuated. Those remaining are being asked to make ex escalating and existential sacrifices that so far are being only implicitly acknowledged. Japan's health ministry said Tuesday it was raising the legal limit on the amount of radiation to which each worker could be exposed to 250 millisieverts from 100 millisieverts, five times the maximum exposure permitted for an American nuclear plant worker. The change means that workers can now remain on site longer, the ministry said. It would be unthinkable to raise it further than that considering the health of the workers, the health minister said at a news conference. Tokyo Electric Power, the plant's operator, has said nothing about the workers or how long a worker is expected to endure exposure. The few details Tokyo Electric has made available paint a dire picture. Five workers have died since the quake, 22 have been injured for various reasons, while two are missing, one of them missing inside the reactor. One worker was hospitalized after suddenly grasping his chest and finding himself unable to stand, and another needed treatment after receiving a blast of radiation near a damaged reactor. Eleven workers were injured in a hydrogen explosion at reactor number three. Radiation close to the reactors is reported now at 400 millisieverts per hour. So the other statistic was per year. After the blast in reactor number two and the fire at reactor number four, but has now dropped to as low as 0.6 millisieverts at the gate. Tokyo Electric and Japanese regulators have not released any statistics on radiation levels inside the buildings where engineers are desperately trying to fix electrical systems, pumps, and other gear wrecked by Friday's earthquake and tsunami. <clears throat> so, uh, some of you might know that, that um, the uranium in these plants, which actually comes from Saskatchewan, um, are, are little pellets. They're like the size of a fingernail, and they sit on the top of a tube. And um, when the tube uh, gets too hot, um, there's a casing on the tube called zirconium, and it starts melting, and then the pellet loses shape, and then pressure builds up in the uh, reactor. So what's happening in these reactors now is that uh, if the pressure builds up, then there can be a meltdown of the reactor, because they can't uh, seem to cool all of these rods equally. And so uh, one of the things that somebody has to decide a few times a day is when to open up the vents and release all of the pressure that's building up inside these chambers. And you can imagine also who that person is. You know, and somebody has to literally go to uh, a dial and open up... Um, I don't know what it is, a pipe or something. Some of you might know the, the engineering better, better than me. And um, also, what this article doesn't talk about are um, all of the helicopter pilots who fly right into that steam um, to dump water, uh, whatever it is they're dumping, uh, on those plants. And um, also, these statistics are coming from 
Um, this is from the New York Times, but a lot of these statistics come from uh, bodies that are now uh, by the plant that are monitoring uh, the plant, but none of them can get closer than 18 miles from the plant. That's as close as they'll go to the plant uh, to keep their people safe. So this is where these statistics are coming from. They won't even go near the plant. So um, today the the topic is um, the burning house. And, you know, I had a talk prepared about the burning house. And then this afternoon, you know, reading again um, some of these articles, um, I think, you know, what a burning house is nowadays, this week, uh, for all of us, is significant. And um, I thought I would read this so that it was in the back of our, it was in our hearts while we were studying the Lotus Sutra, because I think you'll see implicit in the Lotus Sutra um, is um, what's going on in Japan. And implicit in what's going on in Japan is the Lotus Sutra playing out. So last week we talked about how one of the teachings of the Lotus Sutra is that in the Dharma, in Buddhism, there's no truth. That literally the Dharma is not the truth. And that the heart of the Dharma is just upaya, skillful means. And the person who is um, um, acting skillfully is the bodhisattva is somebody who gives their life to serve other beings. To serve not other beings, to serve all beings. To serve interconnectedness. And so there are an infinite number of teachings because there are an infinite number of ways to serve. And that's why you can never understand the whole path. You can't ever understand the whole path because you can't get the whole picture because there are myriad numbers of beings. And to reach those beings, you need different skills. So you can't really explain the the path. Have you ever tried to explain the path? Um... Sometimes we do things that are bad, thinking that they're good. And sometimes we do things that are good, thinking that they're bad. And the path of the bodhisattva is to really look clearly at that, at actions and consequences. And the bodhisattva is also critical of the early form of Buddhist teachings that focus exclusively on intention and challenge this idea that one's actions can only count if the intention is pure by suggesting that actions can only account if they're skillful, if they're creative, and if they're effective. They have to be effective. So you may have good intentions, which is all well and good, But your actions have to make a difference. 
<clears throat> and so what we do here is we practice in a way that we can realize our lives. That's what we're realizing. And when you really realize your life, how can you not be compassionate? How can you not act? And again, there is not one way to act. Social action from this perspective is, doesn't look one way. It's action and it's always social. You cannot wake up without others, and you need others in order to wake up. <coughs> and so maybe uh, when you start to practice in this way and you realize your life is interconnected with all other life, um, it's not only that compassion arises, but uh, your life is meaningful. And how can compassion be anything other than realizing this meaning? And maybe this is what we're doing as we grow towards death. And then I had a thought today that maybe we're not growing older towards death, but growing younger towards death. Maybe as we get closer and closer to death, as our life becomes more and more meaningful, we grow younger, younger and younger. The yogis like hearing that. <laughs> this doesn't mean your complexion gets any better. <laughs> and so maybe a bodhisattva is just somebody who's young. Somebody who's young and doing what they love. Do you remember when you were young and you did what you loved? <laughs> And maybe doing what you love as an adult changes every five years, five days. <laughs> Thomas Edison, when he was trying to come up with a light bulb, um, he worked with 20 engineers uh, to create a filament. And they tested 100 filaments, 200 filaments, 500 filaments, a thousand filaments, and after a thousand filaments, his foreman quit. And he said to Thomas Edison, how are we going to ever learn anything creating these filaments that keep burning out? And Edison said, well, we know a thousand ways now, it doesn't work. <laughs> and being a bodhisattva does not mean you have to understand the scene exactly. You don't need perfect understanding to be a bodhisattva. And maybe this is the biggest difference between the Buddha and the bodhisattva, is the arhat has perfect understanding, and the bodhisattva does not. The bodhisattva, though, is trying as best as he or she can, not just to understand, but to serve. And maybe sometimes understanding actually gets in the way of service. Another way of saying that is that you don't have to be nice. The practice is not about social niceties. <laughs> Once I asked Joan Halifax why she stopped studying at Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh, who was the first person to give her ordination as a teacher. 
And she said, he was just too nice. <laughs> if you know Joan, you can understand that story. And so uh, our practice is really cultivating skillful tools. And the tools, maybe, are just uh, uh, byproducts of our wounds. Your life has handed you certain wounds that you have to create tools in order to transform. And then those tools uh, show up in your arms, in your eyes, in your belly, in your legs, and become what you can use to connect with others. Maybe you can fly a helicopter. Maybe you can clothe people. Maybe you can teach people to read. Or maybe you can write poetry and save poetry from extinction. And in the same way that you don't choose your wounds, maybe you don't really have a say in your tools either. Sometimes people say, you know, I don't, I don't know how to serve. And I think sometimes that those people should just ask their friends. Ask your friends. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what you're good at. They'll tell you what you can do. So Shariputra realizes at the beginning of this chapter that he took the Buddha's teachings of nirvana at face value. And he's disappointed. And he's saying, I thought the path was to transcend this body and this mind and this world and not be reborn in the cycle of birth and death. And Shariputra is now completely depressed. No, the Buddha says, don't you know that in the past I constantly taught you? What did you teach me? Shariputra says to the Buddha, well, I taught you the vow of the Bodhisattva. I taught you this aspiration to wake up with all beings, simultaneously with all beings. But you forgot. So I reminded you for hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of kalpas, which are like eons. And this is what Ann Waldman calls rubber time. Hundreds of thousands of eons, the Buddha has been reminding Shariputra how to serve, and Shariputra, being so focused on the teaching of nirvana, kept forgetting, and kept getting stuck on this one way of practicing to reach nirvana, which, those of you who, who don't know, the word nirvana literally means extinction. You forgot, the Buddha says to him, that you have already been doing it. And some of you might know, this is actually borrowed from the Pali Ken. There's so many suttas where everybody forgets what they're doing. And then the Buddha says, my purpose here is just to remind you. And in a way, you could say, the whole purpose of the practice we're doing here is not an end in itself. It's just to remind us. It's skillful means to remind us what's important. Maybe you came in today being obsessed with, you know, buying a certain uh, object. And maybe you leave here being obsessed with another object. But maybe that object is a little closer to your heart than the one you came in with. I appeared, the Buddha seems to be saying, 
just to jog your memory. Now, some of you should also know the background to this story is that in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, you become a Buddha when there is another Buddha who predicts your awakening. There's a story that you see a lot. So Shariputra suddenly realizes the Buddha is making a prediction that he is going to have an awakening. So he gets really excited. He realizes the Buddha has just made a prediction that he is going to, to wake up to all things. So he starts dancing. And he starts dancing, and the monks all around him realize that because the Buddha has said this out loud, they too have received a prediction. So they start dancing. And as they start dancing, flowers start raining down from the sky. Yeah, cooling things down. But it doesn't stop the rave. And they dance and they dance. Now, some of you might know that uh, in Pali Buddhism, there's no dancing. No one does any dancing. And not only that, their robes. Their robes are recycled fabrics. They're patched together robes. These monks are wearing colorful robes of brocade. They're dancing together. And it's in the rain of flowers. For thousands of eons in each moment. Okay? Then, the dancing gets out of control and monks start taking off their top robe. So the robe are made up of two, two pieces. So basically, they're taking their shirts off. And then, they're dancing with their shirts off and suddenly, all of the shirts start lifting off the ground and start balancing in mid-air. Have you got this? Then, the monks realize that the gods are also dancing, and they all take the robes that are now in mid-air, and they offer them to the Buddha. They've offered them the shirt on their back to the Buddha as a way of saying, uh, as a way of offering gratitude for this prediction. Now, you might also realize that we're well into chapter 3, and the Buddha has still not taught the Lotus Sutra. A dance is happening, another ritual, more rain, still no Lotus Sutra. Then, finally, Shariputra turns to the Buddha and says, Will you teach me? And the Buddha says, In Varanasi, this is where the Buddha was originally teaching and was enlightened, he says, In Varanasi, um, I turned the wheel of the Dharma. So when he first taught it, it was called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And now I'm going to turn the wheel again. In other words, we're going to actually rework what the Dharma is. We're taking the wheel and we're turning it. Last summer, uh, David Loy, who many of you know, uh, wrote a letter to the Dalai Lama and to Thich Nhat Hanh, suggesting that it's 2010 and it's time to turn the wheel of the Dharma again and that the wheel of the Dharma should now turn towards climate change, and that the future of the Buddha Dharma uh, should be a future that is uh, uh, in communication and in service with climate change. Uh, the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh have picked this up. 
And now there are conversations about calling uh, this next decade a new turning of the wheel of Buddhism, which is a pretty significant thing when you think that 2,000 years have passed since the wheel was last turned. Yeah. And um, I uh, uh, just came home from Regina, where I gave a talk and met a researcher on climate change who told me about a statistic that was just released that three years ago, uh, 70% of the American public thought that climate change was an important issue. Uh, so a month ago, uh, the new statistics shows that now 40% of Americans think that climate change is an important issue. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Little bit of denial in the burning house. Anyways, um, the Buddha says, okay, Shariputra, I'm going to teach you with a parable. Suppose there was a very wealthy man, and he had 20 or 30 sons. Presume he's a single dad. 20 or 30 sons. So this is not like the Bible. Like in the Bible, they say, you know, Joseph had three sons. These are their names, you know. In the Lotus Sutra, it's like, they had 30, 70, 100 sons. <laughs> um, there is a fire in the house. And it's an old Victorian house filled with hair in the walls, newspapers, um, garbage everywhere. And outside of the house, there is one gate. And as the fire erupts in the house... The boys don't notice because they're on Xbox and they're totally absorbed and they don't notice that there is a fire raging through the house and burning the animals, the papers, the furniture packed up in this house. This is a house that has not been well uh, taken care of. Who's to blame this single father with 30 sons for not cleaning his house? Anyways, the father has to invent, the Buddha says, some skillful means. So the father thinks, I will just tie my sons to a bench, and I'll carry the bench out. Then he realizes he can't carry the bench out because it'll never get through the gate. Presuming some of these kids are pretty young. So, because there's one gate, he realizes that even if he is strong enough and capable enough, of getting the kids out of the house, they have to get out of the house on their own steam. On their own steam. So, he runs into the room and says, outside, there are three different carts. There is a goat cart, which is, I think, where they get go-kart from. There is a deer cart and an ox cart. The kids go crazy. The kids who love goat carts, they go running out of the house for the goat cart. The kids who love deer carts, they go running out of the house for deer cart. And the rest, who love presumably ox carts, go running outside to go play with the ox carts. But when they get out the gate, there is only one cart. And it's a cart driven by a white ox. 
So the Buddha turns to Shariputra and says to Shariputra, the kids were saved. They were saved through skillful means. And then he asked Shariputra a question. Um, did the father lie? Did the father lie to get the kids out of the house? This is a question we can all contemplate. Is when is it okay to lie to uphold the precepts? In the fall, we had uh, some monks come from Burma to give a talk. And uh, these are monks who are forbidden to carry arms. Uh, every day they chant uh, the Vinaya Code, which are uh, all the precepts. And yet, um, to escape from Burma to the Thai border, or through the Thai border, they have to uh, uh, grow their hair. Uh, they have to lie to get through. When is it okay to tell a lie uh, to be skillful? So to be skillful, there have to be, for something to be upaya, there have to be three qualities present. The first is appropriateness. The action has to be appropriate to the circumstance. This is something I try and do with my son as much as possible. When he's done something um, I mean, he rarely does anything idiotic, but if he ever does anything, you know, once every few years, um, where he needs to be, uh, you know, reprimanded, then I always try and respond to him with something related to what he's done. So uh, recently he kept riding his bicycle in the alley and he wouldn't come in. And so I, had, I, I felt like I wanted to say to him, if you don't come in, you can't use the computer for a week. And yet, this wouldn't, according to this uh, rule, be skillful. Because the means has to be related to the activity for it to be appropriate. So something appropriate could be, if you don't get off your bike, you can't ride your bike tomorrow, you know, to school or whatever. So the punishment, in a way, is totally related to the activity, appropriate to the activity. The second is skillfulness that the activity to be skillful has to skillfully relate to the level of the other. You have to get down and into the situation with the other in order for the other to dissolve so that you can really know their circumstances and understand what will work. And we all know who try and work this way with negotiating that it's trial and error. And last, it has to be effective. So in the story with the father and the carts, it's effective because he appeals to something in them. The father knows what's appealing in them in order to have skillful means. In other words, the father is sensitive to what they want. And this is the basics of ethics in the Lotus Sutra. this level of skillfulness. I remember when I first started as a psychotherapist, I had a, a client who was a uh, vet, and his responsibility in the uh, military was working in cafeterias and working with, uh, I guess, you know, I don't know a lot about this, but the military 
personnel have these cards. It's like their ID card. But it's kind of like a student library card. It's loaded up with funds. And they have to swipe it to you know, pay for their meals or whatever. And that was his job. But in his uh, traumatic stress and the symptoms from his traumatic stress, any kind of financial exchange created so much anxiety for him. And so uh, when he came, I didn't even think about that, even though he had told me that on the phone. And then when it was time for him to pay me, it was really, really awkward. And then he left and didn't pay. And then um, uh, I went to see my supervisor. And my supervisor said, uh, I, I won't go through the whole story, but my supervisor suggested, well, maybe he can just pay with a check and mail it to your house. And then you don't have to do that yet in person. We tried that. It didn't work. Created all kinds of other anxieties. Maybe he could... Um, bring you the money in an envelope and just leave it by the door as he comes in. Tried that, didn't work. Anyways, we tried 10 things, 20 things, 30 things. Nothing really worked in a way, but the process of being able to try all of these different methods was working. And in a way, the anxiety was decreasing because he was willing to play with me and I was willing to play with him. We had days sometimes where he would lay the money out on the floor and we would both look at it. We had, we had one time where we would match bills. He would come at the end of the day and he, he once asked me, like, how much do you get paid? Really just testing the boundaries, you know. And I said, oh, well, I keep all the money in this box. I said, well, how much is in there? So I said, well, you pull out your money and I'll pull out my money. You know, he would put out a 20 I would pull out a 20, pull out a 5, I would find a 5, pull out a 5. And we, and we played with it, and this was, this was really healing. So skillful means uh, have to be appropriate to the circumstance. And lastly, and I'm repeating myself here, but they have to be effective. Do you hear that? It has to be effective. It can't just be about good intention. <clears throat> The Lotus Sutra chapter on the burning house is particularly uh, kind of resonant with me because this week I've been uh, writing, I'm, I'm deep in writing a, a new book and I've been using stories from my childhood. And so what happens is, I'm, as any of you know who write, you write and you run out of things to do and then... Um, uh, you go do something else. And then you think you can do something else. But what you're doing is really acting out whatever's going on in the, in the book. And um, I'm starting to remember all these stories from when I was young. And um, so, um, so as I was studying the Lotus Sutra, I remember being 12 years old. And when I was 12 years old, when I needed some time away from the anxiety of my house, I would just uh, get cigarettes and I would uh, go smoke and this was like a great thing to do after school so I lived across the street from my school on Spadina and I would uh, climb up there was a way that you could actually climb up onto the roof of the school and so it was about 4.30 in the afternoon um, in late fall and so the sun was setting uh, really early and um, 
I could look out from this view over the whole neighborhood. And the farthest I could see was Bathurst Street, where the synagogue uh, was. And this was my family's synagogue, and this was where I was going to study after school, um, because it was the year before my bar mitzvah, and I had to prepare for my bar mitzvah. And I hated preparing. For, I was very good at Hebrew, and I really enjoyed that, uh, but I hated preparing for my bar mitzvah. And I was in the process of making a deal with my parents that when I... Uh, finished my bar mitzvah, then I would no longer be Jewish. <laughs> my, my parents told me I was anti-Semitic. And, um, and um, uh, there was a while my, mo- my mother tried to call me by my Hebrew name that year. And uh, anyways, I I climbed up to the top one day after school of the the roof of the school, and I looked out over the the neighborhood looking west. And you know in the early, like in the late fall, when uh, the sun sets over roofs, everything's orange, you know, it looks like it's on fire. And I remember looking across the neighborhood and thinking to myself, everything's on fire. The neighborhood is on fire with suffering. I remember this thought in my mind that the whole neighborhood is on fire with suffering. And I was watching people like they were coming home from work, nannies pushing strollers, you know, any typical scene, you know, in this kind of neighborhood. And I remember feeling like, I, I am on fire. And I was smoking, but I was... I was anxious, and it was the first moment in my life where I really felt what suffering was. Not just feeling suffering, but like recognizing suffering. And I would look down at the orange houses of the neighbors, and I knew their families. You know, I knew who was, had a happy marriage, who didn't. Uh, who was cheating with who, who lost their job, you know. I knew more than I should, as any 12-year-old does. And I remember just being overcome with this feeling of everybody is suffering. Everybody is suffering. And I remember from school all the way to the synagogue is all suffering. There wasn't anyone I could think of in the synagogue who wasn't suffering. There was no one I could think of at school who wasn't suffering. But it was not just out there. It was like my own experience of this. And maybe you all can think about this in your life. This time where you realize that your own suffering is not separate from other people's suffering. And in a way, this is the parable of the house on fire. It's a house that's on fire with suffering. And we're all in a house that is on fire. It's why we're here. I think in the fall, didn't we do the Buddha's teaching on burning? Everything's burning? Yeah. Everything, the Buddha says, is burning. Everything's burning. Burning with lust, with greed with anger. And I would add maybe to that burning with denial, burning with compartmentalization. 
fragmentation. That day, I forgot there's an ending to the story. That, that, that day, when I was up on the roof, I, I then had the thought after that, I'm out. I'm out. And um, I, I left my neighborhood that day. I uh, did finish my bar mitzvah, but I, I left all my friends, and I never participated in the neighborhood again. And I basically moved to Kensington Market. So I still lived at home, but I just I convinced my parents to switch schools, and I basically you know spent the rest of my my time growing up in Kensington Market. And um, in a way, sometimes I've, I've never really gone back, you know. But um, funny enough, uh, when I started teaching yoga, I got a call from uh, somebody who I didn't know who said, "Will will you come teach me yoga? I've heard that you're a yoga teacher." And I, so I said, sure, you know, uh, where do you live? Right in my backyard. So they built a yoga room in a house that faced my house. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That faced my house. You walk into the room, and there's this brand new addition with this beautiful heated floor, and it looks right into the backyard that I grew up in. <laughs> it was just the strangest, strangest thing. The price went up really fast. <clears throat> the world, the Buddha is saying, is driven by craving. And the symptom is burning. And he says to Shariputra, people of the world like and need different kinds of carts. So the first cart, right? The first cart, the goat cart, is the Shravaka cart. People who are listening to the Buddha's teachings. Shravaka means one who hears, one who's listening to the Buddha's teaching. Right? So he's going to go through the three carts, three different schools of practice. The second cart is the cart of the Pratyaka Buddha. Pratyaka Buddha is somebody who, who doesn't need the Buddha, who just in their own analysis, in their own experience, uh, wakes up. I read today an interview with Kaz Tanahashi, and the interviewer is very challenging to him, and the interviewer says, you know, did you ever really have a Zen teacher? <laughs> and, and Kaz says, no. I've never been into Zen uh, I've never been into postural Zen. I've found my own way. <laughs> I like this a lot. Don't don't take that seriously. <laughs> um, and the last cart, um, the third cart, is the cart of the Bodhisattva, and they're all valid. Some people need the first. Some people need the second. Some people need the third. All of us. Well, I shouldn't say all of us. Most of us, we come to practice because I'm suffering. My first practice was smoking practice. Because we're suffering. And that's okay. And when you're practicing just for yourself, it's helpful to have this linear model. 
with nirvana at the end, the extinguishing of suffering. But Shariputra is realizing here that actually, as you start to deepen through that form, you start recognizing others. Because as you start to really see what you are made of, you start forgetting about yourself in the most helpful way and recognizing others. In the precepts course, this is what we've been studying. One of the best forms of generosity we've been talking about is just giving people your face. Giving your face to the streetcar driver, giving your face to your friends, going home to your partner, going home to your kids, and giving them your face. And most of the time, when we're wrapped up in our addictions and our self-centeredness, we don't give our face. We give a social face, or we hide. So one form of skillful means that we can all do is really to give people your face. Then you can try giving them your ear. But that's, uh, that's a hard path. Just start with your face. And then, if nirvana is only one cart, then it might as well be samsara. In other words, if nirvana is de-emphasized as the goal for the bodhisattva, then why not just replace it with samsara? Samsara is conditioned existence. Right? Just these conditions. And for Mahayana Buddhism a new idea emerges that maybe nirvana is samsara. Maybe nirvana, maybe this extinguishing of the clinging to oneself can only happen within samsara. Maybe the two are not separate. Maybe you can only have nirvana because of samsara and vice versa. <clears throat> in the um, because I'm in a precepts course I have to be honest. <laughs> and so in in an honest effort of full disclosure, I also have to say that I really don't like the ending of this chapter. Uh, so uh, I really want to give a talk and end here, but unfortunately I have to give you the rest of the chapter, which some of you have read, which uh, just irks me to no end. <laughs> the Buddha basically starts ending by asking the reader to really think about um, your, your motivation to get out of your burning house. That's really a question to spend some years on. What motivates you to get out of the house? So then he says... Um, 
if you can't get activated in your practice, um, sorry, those who get activated in their practice and have faith in the Lotus Sutra, they benefit. And those who don't have faith in the Lotus Sutra, um, they get reborn as donkeys <laughs> that will have a very heavy load and will get whipped. Or you'll get reborn as a human that is deaf, dumb, blind, in poverty, and has water blisters and diabetes. <laughs> to me, this is the opposite of the Bible. The Bible would never say this about poor people or underprivileged people. In a text that is talking about serving all beings, we have a chapter that ends exactly the way we don't want it to. And I am surprised that someone has not edited this out already. <laughs> um, if the Lotus Sutra is so interested in serving all beings, what about those with diabetes? Water blisters. What about donkeys? Anybody who's been to a country, especially in South America, and sees how beasts of burden are treated, um, isn't this what the Lotus Sutra should aspire to? It seems to be uh, not following its own suggestion here. Um, this is a major discrepancy in the Lotus Sutra, I think. And it's not the only one. But it's the only one we've hit so far. Um, the last thing I'll say, and then we can talk a little bit, is that um, the point of these cards, the point of skillful means, is to motivate you to get out of the house on your own steam, on your own two feet, Nobody can do it for you. No one can do it for you. And it takes an open heart, but I think the Lotus Sutra is also saying it takes some imagination. And uh, whatever your attention, intention is to get out of the house, it'll work. But the thing is, is you might realize once you've run out of the house that there are cats in there. that there is still a mouse in there. And then, right on the edge of nirvana, you turn around. This is the path of the bodhisattva. Right at the edge of nirvana. You run out of the house and you're free, and right at the edge of recognizing that, you turn around. Because there are still other beings in there. So that's the parable, the burning house. Maybe it's the story of your week. So, any comments or thoughts for a couple of minutes before we...
we finish. I thought we could have spent the whole class talking about the fact that you need to lie to uphold the precepts. <laughs> if the deepest precept is compassion, uh, sometimes you need to lie <laughs> to hold that up. Yeah. So maybe that last part is a lie. Uh-huh. You know, you're not going to end up blind or deaf or with diabetes. Uh-huh. But it's it's high. It's a way of relating to people that it was when it was real. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. You know, a way of getting to yeah. them. Maybe that's a skillful means. Of, yeah. And if you don't have faith in this, yeah. you will be a donkey. Yeah. 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 Just, yeah. yeah. Just joking. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe I was taking that too literally. It was like one of the first times in a Buddhist text where I was like, where's the Bible? <laughs> we, we need a bit of Bible here. <laughs> uh-huh. So if the Bodhisattva <coughs> at the Eureka moment when he or she leaves mm-hmm. the burning house mm-hmm. finally, mm-hmm. of their own means, yeah. is perpetually turning around and re-entering the house, Uh uh when does the Bodhisattva elevate to Buddha? Uh Mm -hmm. Or is that the purpose of Bodhisattva? Uh Uh I'm very new here. (laughs) We all are. And uh, and this is... Which means you may expect an answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, my, my first response is we're in chapter three. <laughs> you know, and we're growing younger. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, the only thing I'll say about the term bodhisattva is that the, the word bodhi, it, it doesn't mean one who is uh, awake. Like, it, it means one who's awakening, enlightening. And the word sattva... Um, there's actually an academic debate about this word um, that probably will never end. But a lot of people think this comes from the yoga tradition, from this term sattva, which is, which is a term that kind of means lightness or buoyancy. But actually, in older Sanskrit, predating uh, the Yoga Sutra, that actually comes more through the Buddhist lineage, because in the Buddhist lineage they don't use the term sattva that way. The word sattva meant character. So bodhisattva is like when enlightening is in your character, that your character is to enlighten others, is to awaken others. It's to awaken others. And how that moves from become, how that eventually becomes, how a bodhisattva eventually becomes a Buddha, we're only in chapter three. (laughs) We're still trying to get out of the house. That was the first time we've even been taught the Lotus Sutra. Uh, it strikes me that just all of these teachings are skillful means, like just like the Bible. I mean, it's, uh-huh. I don't know. I'm not a religious person, and I just see these as being tools to inspire people to behave, you know, and act in a in a compassionate way. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can threaten them with the fear of being reincarnated as a donkey or going to hell or yeah. whatever, and it's just it and or 
you can tell them that if you're a bodhisattva, then eventually you'll become a Buddha. But uh-huh. it's, it's all just inspiration for yeah. guiding people sure. into a positive. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you have to be careful because your inspiration has to meet the level of others. So as soon as the tsunami and earthquake, uh, you know, tore a 400 kilometer wide hole and 160 kilometers long into the earth, um, the the governor of that prefecture, I think it was, uh, said that the Japanese people deserved this. It was their karma because of their egoism. It was actually one of the first things that was reported, I think. Yeah, a former mayor of Tokyo. Former mayor of Tokyo. Okay. So, skillful means. Sorry, go, go ahead. He then went on to apologize. He did. He's actually a fervent nationalist who thinks Japan's modernity has been a kind of a. It's taken the wrong path, and then yeah. just stayed with the traditional. Right. He was, he was a good friend of Mishima. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. that kind of puts it in a different yeah. context. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Karina mentioned to me that, you know, one metaphor we should also talk about is Tarkovsky's film with a burning house, mm-hmm. where likewise a, a house is burned to teach, supposedly to teach people um, to let go of their material attachments. Um, skillful means you know did the governor uh, did the former mayor uh, benefit um, beings at that moment you know, it's a little bit like and I talked about this a few weeks you know you know when there's a disaster and, and you know religious people run in with explanations rather than blankets and food so, um, yeah. Any other comments? Questions? Yeah. Elena. I was just thinking that skillful means can be a little bit slippery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be very convenient. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you change your mind about something. Yeah. Yeah, what about killing to uphold the precepts? Yeah. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. I just wonder how long is that house going to burn? Like, when is it going to come down? You know? Uh-huh. And there's this kind of urgency to get out. Yeah. But at the same time, if this is kind of a metaphor for where we all are on Earth, uh-huh. and that nirvana is samsara, the house is just going to keep burning forever. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. never getting out. Yeah. In a way, yeah. you know, it's... World's getting hot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, where, you know, I'm sure, you know, Richard Branson's got a plan. <laughs> you know, but for everybody else, we're here. We're here. And, uh, and we have to do something. And we have to use skillful means uh, to make sure that, that we restructure things for all people to benefit. You know, mm-hmm. I should also say that the issue of the... the the um, New Yorker that has written most about Japan was this, la- this last issue. And if you open up the cover, has anyone, has anyone seen this yet? 
you open up the cover and there's a full page it's a it's it's a it's a, a, a photograph of all of these workers of dif- different ethnic uh, backgrounds uh, building a new building on the shoreline in New Orleans and you can see so all these people have gathered together to build a new building for the city of New Orleans and then right at the bottom is the Goldman Sachs <laughs> logo and you know another project financed by Goldman Sachs you know and you know we could talk about this for, for, for a long long time and we won't but you know just in turn skillful means also is uh, having that critical eye and having ideals um, that are not just based on self-centered benefit and being able to use that in order to affect positive action for all beings and so, so social action, you know, I don't like that term so much because it always feels like you're like out there doing something. But it's also a way of seeing and a kind of complexity. Uh, I just want to add mm-hmm. taking responsibility. Sounds. And taking responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's finish chanting. And... Um, Oh, what's the parable going to be? Parable going to be next? <laughs> seven of them, seven parables. We're only on the first. <clears throat> Fearless fifty. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Thank you.